Let's turn now to New Testament uh, book of Romans, chapter 1. And we'll read the first 17 verses of Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We also turn in our Forms and Prayers book to Articles 18 and 19 of the Belgic Confession. 18 and 19, we're going to read Article 18, the Incarnation. So then, we confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal Son into the world at the time set by him. The Son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses, except for sin, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. And he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both, to save them both together. Therefore we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, that he shared the very flesh and blood of children, that he is fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham, for he assumed Abraham's seed and was made like his brothers except for sin. In this way he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Article 19, the two natures of Christ. We believe that by being thus conceived, the person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with human nature in such a way that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus his divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. It has a beginning of days. It is of a finite nature, and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature. For our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then, what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body, but meanwhile his divine nature remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave, and his deity never ceased to be in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a while it did not show itself as such. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man, true God in order to conquer death by his power, and true man, that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we already considered uh, the divinity or the divine nature of the Son of God in Article uh, Chapter 10, where there also we confess him as the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, uh, who was born in Bethlehem, according to Scripture. And yet, uh, as Micah says, his goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. The one born in Bethlehem, indeed, is the true eternal God. Now, that's uh, reaffirmed in Articles 18 and 19, uh, but with this difference. In the context here, our confession is uh, telling the story of redemption, And it's reaffirming Christ's deity in connection with the meaning of his coming in the flesh. A real, true human nature that he assumed. And so uh, these articles before us are about the truth of his humanity, which is explained at large, but also in relationship to his deity. And it then uh, explains, uh, if that is really possible, it affirms and confesses the truth of the unity of the divine and human nature in one person. And again, as we read these articles together, perhaps you were struck with the wonder and the beauty of this confession. These are things that we may take for granted, 
They're taught in the catechism classes, and yet they're unspeakably marvelous and wonderful, and they pertain to the very heart of the gospel of salvation concerning who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And so as we are challenged to think, along with our confession as it uh, faithfully summarizes the teaching of Scripture, may God help us to do that in that spirit of faith and worship and wonder at the greatness of our of our Lord. Uh, certainly, uh, what is uh, confessed here concerning our Savior is in connection with God's saving purpose. And that makes this confession so intensely practical, uh, so necessary for our salvation. It's really basic uh, to the understanding and the comfort of what it means to be a Christian. It's to know this Savior, the Son of God, who came into the world as promised. And we want to give emphasis to that also, the promise of God in uh, sending his Son. But we begin with the wonder of his incarnation. You may have noticed that Article 18 especially uh, quotes many passages of Scripture. There are uh, 11 instances in which we have uh, statements of this confession in quotation marks because, indeed, it is uh, quoting from the Bible. Again, very simply, simply a reminder that uh, the Belgian Confession, as well as our Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort, are summaries of scriptural teaching. And uh, they demonstrate throughout that the affirmations of faith that are made are based upon the Word of God. And they simply organize and summarize the teachings of Scripture in a way that serves to help us grow in our understanding and faith in what the Bible teaches. And this article particularly quotes many passages of Scripture, passages that speak of the Son of God entering this world and our nature. And there are two things that we want to notice at the outset. And the first is that God sent... His eternal Son. That's the language that's used early on in uh, Article 18. God fulfilled the promise which He had made when He sent His only and eternal Son into the world. And that itself involves uh, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, the eternal existence of the Son with the Father, whom the Father sent into the world. That emphasizes the Father's activity in sending the Son, even as John 3.16 does. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. That's one thing, but also this article especially emphasizes the activity of the Son of God Himself in coming into the world. Everyone else beside uh, the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world in uh, what has been called the usual way. And, and usually coming into the world is a description of birth. People come into this world from their mother's womb. They make their first appearance when they are born. But in contrast to that, the Son of God came into this world. Yes, indeed, he was born, literally, physically born, but he came into this world by way of the incarnation. 
by way of his holy conception in the womb of the virgin. And uh, this article uh, speaks of that as the activity of the Son, something that he did, something that he deliberately did. That's how the eternal Son is described here as doing something. He's not described as one to whom something happened, as if he somehow just passively uh, underwent some kind of a, a transformation through something that was done to him. The son took the form of a bondservant. Now that's the language of Philippians chapter 2 that our confession uh, quotes here. He took the form of a bondservant. Or... He assumed human nature. If I were to assume uh, another name, that would be a a, a deliberate activity of mine. And so that word assume, it's actually used some five times in this article. Every time we read that the son assumed our nature, it's describing what he did. And assume is another word for take up or take upon. I don't want to belabor this point unnecessarily, but it's important that we appreciate it. That we realize that the incarnation was the act of the eternal Son of God. And this language, he assumed or he took upon himself our nature, is also the language, you might say, of addition. Our confession doesn't say that that the eternal Son of God changed into a man. In fact, even the language of the Son of God becoming man, uh, that, that is appropriate to use such language, but we must be careful and we must understand what we're saying when we say that the Son of Man became man. And that is that he became man, if you will, by addition. He didn't come become man by some kind of change or transformation. He didn't become anything less than he was. Nothing was subtracted from his eternal being by the incarnation. Nothing was taken away from who he always was as God. He humbled himself, not by taking something away from what he was, but by becoming what he was not, by taking to himself our nature. And that's important to appreciate, also in view of of what is sometimes an, uh, a misunderstanding of Philippians 2. Some translations use the, the language of uh, the Son who was in the form of God emptying himself. And that might suggest that, that somehow he uh, put off his divinity in some manner. In fact, there, there's a there's a, a, a word that describes that that heresy that arose in the history of the church. It's called the kenosis theory of the incarnation, from the Greek word to empty, as if the Son of God somehow laid aside the reality of His divine nature when He entered the world. But that's not the language of Scripture. As God, as the eternal Son. He did not become less God by assuming our nature. No, rather, he took on the properties of our human nature. And he didn't simply appear to be human. And he wasn't just part human. But he had all that belongs to a real human body 
and soul. He took on all the properties of our human nature. And you know that there is a unity to the human race. Because every person that ever lived was a descendant of Adam, as we all are. And uh, there is there is a blood connection that Jesus Christ had with the human race, going all the way back to Adam. You can read that in Luke chapter 3, that gives the ancestry, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, all the way back to Adam. And that means that, that Jesus was not some kind of a, a, a new creation, a kind of alien being. Rather, he was conceived, yes, miraculously by the Holy Spirit, but in the womb of the Virgin. And he took upon our nature also through the flesh and blood of his human mother, and thus took upon himself everything that belongs to our humanity, body and soul. There was also a natural development of of the Lord Jesus in the womb of Mary. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says this. It says, well, beginning at verse 14, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And verse 17, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In chapter 4, verse 15, it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, that's the exception. He was freed from sin. Jesus had a blood connection with the whole human race, and uh, he had a literal ancestry uh, from from Abraham specifically. And that's what we heard in Romans uh, chapter 1. Well, there the reference is uh, his ancestry through David, where it speaks of uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And so Jesus took upon himself a true human nature. He humbled himself in that manner. And he continues to this day in that same human nature that he took to himself. Our confession speaks of that in connection with the fact of his glorification. It says that his human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature, even now. That's what it's referring to. It has a beginning of days, is of a finite nature, and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, and that human body indeed is glorified, nonetheless, it did not change the reality of his human nature. For our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. I challenged my catechism class by asking them the question recently, if you were uh, to suddenly be transported uh, to heaven and were placed right next to where the Lord Jesus Christ was, and imagine that you were blindfolded and you were within arm's reach of him and you reached out your hand, would you feel a human body? 
And they were confused by that, right? Because we think, we tend to think of, of heaven as kind of an airy fairy place and some kind of a mystical, invisible, non-material, kind of unreal place. But we confess that we have our flesh in heaven. That Jesus is in heaven in a true human body. And that's where he will remain until he comes again. Isn't that a wonderful thing? His presence there in the body is the guarantee of our resurrection and that we will join him because the first fruits has already been brought into God's presence and uh, the rest is certain to follow. So he took on the properties of our human nature in order to suffer in humiliation on our behalf. But we also confess that all the while he retained all the properties of the divine nature. He didn't put them aside. That's unthinkable. The nature of God is unchanging. His divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. And our confession goes on to say that his divine nature remained uh, united with his human nature even when he was lying in the grave. That means that the one, the person who entered the grave with respect to his divine nature is still the one who upholds all things by his power. The one who entered the virgin's womb was the one who even at that time fills heaven and earth as to his divine nature. And we say, well, how can that be? Well, it is indeed true, as the Catechism also says, that uh, for a while it did not show itself as such, right? In, order, in other words, the divine nature of, of uh, Jesus Christ, though it was never separated from his human nature, yet in a way it was obscured and covered, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, we sing at Christmas time. Yes, there is a tremendous mystery that we cannot grasp hardly with our imagination, but we wonder and believe at what the scripture reveals concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as true God and true man. And that really is at the heart of the wonder of his humiliation, that the one who is in the form of God and equality with God is not something that he had to grasp. It was his eternal possession. Yet he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient unto death. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifested in the flesh. And that means that Christ is both God and man equally. That also is the language of our confession. In fact, uh, that's the language more specifically of the Athanasian Creed. I do, I do want to uh, read a few statements from the Athanasian Creed here on this in this connection in, in uh, Articles 29 uh, through 33. It says, it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. Not 50% God, 50% man, 80% God, 20% man, or any imaginable kind of combination. No, True and fully God and true and fully man. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time 
and he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. You know that heresies, false teachings about Christ, always deny or undermine one or the other of those aspects of our confession of the truth of Christ. They either undermine or deny the the fullness and the reality of his divinity. Think of the Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses. Or they undermine the reality of his humanity. Our confession refers to the Anabaptists. As if uh, the Son of God, yeah, somehow developed in the womb of Mary, but he was not actually tainted by partaking of her actual flesh and blood. And that denies the reality of the Incarnation. And heresies always attack one or both of these, uh, one or the other of these teachings of Scripture, but they're both taught in Scripture. And at the, they're at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to believe and to confess both. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as promised before the prophets, concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. That doesn't mean that he became the son of God by the resurrection, but he was so declared and manifested to indeed be the son of God with infinite power. That power that then began to be manifested when Jesus arose from the tomb and said, all power in heaven and on earth is given to me. And he resumed that glory which he had with the Father before the world. So we believe that the Son of God indeed took upon our nature while remaining the Son of God. And he was so united to our nature as to comprise one person, who is fully divine and fully human. And that leads us to consider, secondly, the unity of Christ's person. Our confession, again, makes clear that the two natures of Christ do not make him two persons, as if uh, the divine and human nature somehow existed uh, alongside of each other or in an alternating way. As if sometimes Jesus is in God mode and sometimes he's in human mode. No, he is one person, true God and true man. Christ is not divided. Again, the Athanasian Creed is is clear on this point also in, in Articles 34 through 36, where it says, although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. And the two natures of Christ... They are on mar- in marvelous display in God's word, in Jesus' life. It, it, is, it is certainly true that certain things are revealed concerning him that uh, properly 
understood pertain to the specific divine nature or the human nature. Not to suggest that they are divided or they are two persons, but certain things are revealed of him that concern one or the other nature. For example, uh, Jesus sometimes professed ignorance as to the day and the hour that God had appointed for his return. Jesus showed weakness. Well, the divine nature has no weakness. Jesus changed. He grew. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with God and man. God doesn't change. Jesus died. God never dies. So we recognize that that uh, things are taught, are affirmed, with respect specifically to his human nature, and they lead us to wonder and worship and say, yes, this person is a true man. And there are, then there are things that properly understood belong to his divine nature. He showed omniscience. He raised the dead. He spoke to the wind and the waves and they were calmed. And we read of such things and we say, yes, this person is true God. And so we recognize that distinction, but the Bible ascribes both divine and human attributes to the one person of Christ. And sometimes in a rather surprising way. We hear it in the language of Elizabeth. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's referring to Mary. And it's been argued that the language Mary, mother of God, properly understood is orthodox. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus or that Mary gave birth to the divine nature, but she gave birth to the person. And the person is true God as well as true man. Or think of another passage which kind of shows the the opposite where uh, Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, charges them to take heed uh, to God's flock. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Does God have blood? Well, what is said there, we might say, properly belongs to the human nature of Christ, but it's ascribed to the person. It's with reference to Jesus Christ, who is God. And this person shed his blood for us. True God and true man. In one person, these natures not mixed, not blended, not separated, but united in one person. And yes, brothers and sisters, this mystery calls for our wonder and admiration. adoration. Our confession cites the most striking ways in which we believe in this unity when it refers to... Uh, the childhood of Jesus as one who is yet true God and the death and burial of Jesus such that when his body lay in the grave, the divine nature was not how somehow separated from it. Yes, we confess the wonder of Christ's person, our Savior. And in this connection, we confess and believe the faithfulness of God. This point also brings this uh, matter to our own to our own hearts. It's emphasized at the very outset of Article 18, which says that God fulfilled the promise which He had made to the early fathers by the mouth of His holy prophets 
when he sent his only and eternal son into the world at the time set by him. Paul refers uh, to uh, the gospel concerning Christ that was promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In Galatians chapter 4, it says that when the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And that means most practically speaking, brothers and sisters, that we must heartily and firmly believe the purpose for which it all took place. And that is to provide the kind of mediator that we need. A mediator who in our nature did what we failed to do. He obeyed God's law perfectly in the reality of that human nature. In the face of temptation. In the face of weakness. Along the pathway of untold suffering. In a real body with a kind of uh, nerve endings and blood that we share with him the emotional anguish that he experienced in a, in a way that is deeper and more profound than we can imagine, and so that he is able to sympathize with every child of God in the depths of their confusion and suffering, to obey, to suffer, to die, and to conquer death, and to rise from the dead, and to intercede for us. Our salvation depends on that. Why the God-man? Why is that necessary? My catechism students can answer the question, why must he be true God and true man and righteous man at the same time? Can you all answer that question? It's very important, right? He had to be a righteous and perfect man in order to suffer for us. Otherwise, he'd have to suffer for his own sins. He couldn't make atonement for us if he had his own sins to pay for. And he must be a true man in order to suffer in our nature. But at the same time, he had to be true God in order to bear the weight of God's wrath against him and to deliver us from our sin, to offer a sacrifice that is of such infinite worth that it's sufficient to forgive the sins of every one of us by the glory of this person whose righteousness so magnifies God that it's sufficient to be our covering, the ground of our acceptance with God. That's something to actually get quite excited about. Something that should lead us to adore and wonder at the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him who so willingly came for this. Remember Jesus' testimony to the Jews that we heard this morning. I say these things so that you may be saved. There is full redemption from sin and death for all who put their trust in him. To all who forsake any other way of life and who come to him. Believe in that firmly and believe likewise, brothers and sisters, believe in the way of of true transformation. The transformation of our lives. You desire transformation. Do you desire that your life would would uh, get better in terms of what's most important? The knowledge of God, likeness to God, growing faith growing strength, the fruit of the Spirit, likeness to Jesus. Do you know how this takes place? Are you interested in hearing it? Will will you believe it tonight if I tell you how it takes place from God's holy word? 
in a very understandable way, in terms, uh, in, in, in a way that, that, that truly directs us into what should be uh, the priority of our life. I'll share it with you. You've heard it before. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we behold the glory of the Lord as revealed in the gospel. The God who, sh- who called light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is known in Scripture. And then it goes on to say that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's through the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works in us as we behold that glory, as we hear gospel preaching, as we hear sermons on the person of Jesus Christ, as we read the Bible in faith, and in delight about the wonder of Jesus Christ. And we think about it. We reflect on it. We pray about it. And as we focus upon Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in this wonderful, mysterious way, changing us into his likeness. So let us never think that uh, articles in the confession or in the catechism about the person of Jesus Christ with its challenging definitions that take a little bit of effort to learn and to be able to get it right and to try to say it accurately. Let us never think that that's kind of irrelevant doctrine for theologians. No, it has to do with the very profound inexpressible wonders of the person of Jesus Christ, but it can be, it can be summarized in rather simple terms that Jesus is true God and true man in one person. Let us continue to uh, listen to that and focus upon it. And by these means, God will sanctify us more and more into his image. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.